Let's read John 8, starting in verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. God, we do thank you for your word. And God, forgive us for the times when we just read over it and we don't take the time to really meditate on what you're saying to us. Um, thank you, God, for the gift of your word. Thank you that uh, this isn't just a, um, uh, an interesting story that we can read objectively, Lord, but as, as we see that the way that you treat this woman is the way that you want to treat us, um, the way that you defend her, the way that you uh, show her forgiveness, the way that you lead her on into a new life of holiness. God, these, this is the way that you come towards us, and we just thank you for that. And uh, we, we pray, God, that you give us ears to hear today. Lord, uh, uh, please help us to um, uh, see truth, hear truth, and respond to it in faith, trusting you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, if you have your Bibles with you, and you're, you're, and you're following along there, you're going to see that in John chapter 7, right, which is where the story actually begins, John chapter 7, the last verse of it, verse 53, on into like 8 verse 11, it's broken up, it's like set apart with little brackets. Do you guys see that there in your Bibles? Okay, um, it's broken up by little brackets, and maybe in your Bible you actually have a little note that separates this text from the story that's right behind it, um, and that should raise a couple little red flags in your mind, okay, that we, we should probably like, we should address that for a minute. But basically, I won't go into a whole lot of details here, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but basically, um, the earliest manuscripts that we have of John's gospel don't include this story, okay, it's not in there. There's pretty much a complete consensus among biblical scholars that John's not actually the guy who wrote this section of our story. Um, however, there's also almost a complete consensus among scholars that this is indeed uh, a, a legitimate firsthand account of an event within Jesus' ministry. Um, some of our, our earliest manuscripts of Luke's gospel um, actually include this story. So some people think that maybe he wrote it. Nobody really knows. But what we do know is that the early church inserted this into John's gospel. We, we have people as early as the first century, Jerome, other church fathers, early church fathers that reference this story. So we know this wasn't something that was added in hundreds of years later, okay? This was, this was inserted by the early church very shortly after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So the question we have to ask then is why? Why would, we, why would they do that? Um, different folks have different theories as to why they uh, inserted it into John's gospel, period. But then more specifically, why did they choose this spot right here? Why, why did they put it right in this very spot after, verse, or after chapter 7? Well, uh, I have my theory. Here's my theory. Um, because for chapters now, what we've been seeing is that Jesus is making all of these outrageous claims. He's saying stuff like, uh, I'm the bread of life, 
right? The, this whole manna thing in the wilderness that happened centuries ago with our fathers, that was all about me, right? It was all about me. I'm the bread of heaven that's come down, that, that is nourishing you, that is sustaining you, will sustain you into eternity. And he says, I, I am the rock from whom the living water flows. That whole thing with the rock where Moses strikes the rock, that's all about me. I'm the rock. The living water, which is the Holy Spirit, flows from me. He says stuff like, I'm the judge of heaven and earth. One day, at the end of all days, you're going to have to give an account of how you lived your life to me. Um, he says, you know, I'm the, I'm the promised uh, Messiah. I'm the promised Savior. I'm God in the flesh. He calls himself the I Am, which is the divine name given in the Old Testament. Okay? Jesus is making all of these outrageous claims. And these religious leaders of the day are hearing him say this, and they want to kill him for it because they... They think he's a sham, first off, and they say this is blasphemy. But also we know that their uh, uh, hatred for him is fueled by this jealousy because his popularity is rising and all these people are starting to go to Jesus and they hate him for it. And so they're plotting to kill him. Well, at the end of John chapter 7, we're told that Nicodemus, one of those Pharisees, stands up among the leaders, the religious leaders, and says, why are you guys planning on doing this? Don't you know that in our law, it demands that we try or we test someone? Now, we, we know a little bit about Nicodemus. Nicodemus knows Jesus pretty well. He was the guy back in chapter 3 that met with Jesus overnight or late one night and had the long dialogue about what it means to be born again. It's to Nicodemus that Jesus makes his now famous statement. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Um, Nicodemus, we're going to see throughout the Gospels, is going to slowly um, just uh, live in in worship and allegiance to Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, we're going to see him progress there. But Nicodemus, in John chapter 7, stands up among the leaders and says, Why are you plotting to kill this man? Doesn't our law demand that he be tried and tested before we condemn him? And then the very next story, right after he says that, we get our story. We get this story. Did you guys catch in, chapter, in verse 6, the, the writer says, this was a test. This was the test, in my opinion. This is the test that Nicodemus was calling for. I believe that this was the ultimate test by the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, we're going to see that Jesus not only passes this test, but he destroys their plans to trap him. Uh, and he uses this opportunity to, to, to really, again, as we've seen as we read it, shine a light on who he is and why he came. Um, I hope that today as we just take a little bit more time and we unpack this, that, that, that you, would take, you would stop and you would really hear. Because some of us really need to hear and to meditate and to embrace what Jesus is saying to this woman. Some of us also, by the way, really need to hear what Jesus says to the Pharisees. God knows what you need to hear. And that's and, and my hope and prayer that he gives us those ears to hear. So let's go back. Let's back up here. And let's, uh, let's just unpack this section by section. Starting in chapter 7, verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Okay, so there's an open courtyard area in, in the uh, temple when you first walk in. And this is where the rabbis would come, and they would teach everybody. And in that day, the rabbis would sit down as they taught, and everybody had to stand Okay, um, that would uh, help some of you from falling asleep, from not falling asleep. But um, uh, in our culture, somehow we've we've twisted it. We've got it the other way around. Typically, I don't sit, or I don't stand because I'm lazy. But um, most most of us stand. You guys sit. We've got it twisted somehow. But Jesus is sitting, 
Okay, he's sitting, he's teaching this throng of people, this big crowd of people, and then all of a sudden, right in the middle of his message, there's this major interruption. Okay, major interruption. I've been interrupted teaching before. I've never had this kind of interruption. I never, hope I never do. This is what happens. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Okay, in the middle of his message, Pharisees drag in a woman. The scribes drag in a woman. They, they come up to Jesus. They say, teacher, we caught. Notice that we caught this woman in the act of adultery. The word caught is actually used twice in this passage. Um, the, they didn't come in and say, we think this woman might be guilty. Can you help us discern whether or not she's guilty? Her guiltiness has already been ascertained. She is guilty. They, they didn't say that she suspected her of adultery. They caught her in the act. Um, and, and by the way, this, is, this was necessary for this woman to be publicly accused. We know that the Jewish law, when you read it, the Jewish law is severe in its justice, isn't it? But the Jewish law was also very strict in its requirement for evidence. Um, you, couldn't, you couldn't just accuse somebody based on some strong suspicion. It wasn't enough just to see you know, a woman walk out of a guy's house in the morning or a man walk out of a woman's house in the morning and kind of get some funny feelings. It wasn't even enough just to see a man and a woman in a bed, bedroom together in a compromising position. You literally had to see the act taking place. Um, and they're not, they didn't have to be just one, but there had to be two eyewitnesses who saw it. And these eyewitnesses in the trial for the crime under cross-examination um, must be in absolute and complete agreement in every detail. There's an old Jewish story about a woman named Susanna who was accused of a crime, breaking God's law under this particular tree. But as she was being uh, uh, accused in trial, she, was, she ended up being acquitted because in cross-examination, the two witnesses were unable to agree on the size of the leaves of the tree. Okay? So they let her go. Um, the Mishnah, the Mishnah is the, the Jewish commentary on, uh, on the law. Uh, the Mishnah says that, you know, a court that would execute more than one person every seven years was like a slaughterhouse. It was very, very rare that this would happen. Almost never happened. The, 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 the evidence had to be so complete. Why do I mention all that? Well, because we have to understand that what's happening with this woman, with the accusations against this, against this woman, would not have been uh, done flippantly. They don't just throw around accusations in that time. We have very little doubt that this woman is indeed, in fact, guilty. She's guilty. She's been caught red-handed. I've actually read some commentators this week that believe that the Pharisees maybe actually set this woman up. They say because it was such a, uh, a, a rare uh, chance that, that two eyewitnesses would have actually seen them in this act, it must have been some conspiracy. She must have been a patsy. She was a victim of some conspiracy. Uh, you know, she could have been seduced by the guy, and the guy was in on it, and they, you know, the Pharisees was planned for the Pharisees to burst in right at the exact moment, and maybe that's why the guy's not there at the, in the accusation. Maybe that's the reason why. That's a bit of speculation, if you ask me. Uh, it could have been, but here's what we know. Regardless of how it came to that point, the woman is guilty. They don't accuse somebody flippantly. So, uh, if this all was, you know, a big case of entrapment, Maybe if the Pharisees did go through all this, regardless, why would they take this woman 
uh, go through all this trouble with this woman? Why would they bring her to Jesus? Why would they go through all that? Again, verse 6 says, because it was all a plan to test him. Verse 6 says, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Nicodemus says, a man must be tried and tested before condemning him. Here it is. And, and, and see what they're doing. This is an ingenious test. The Pharisees and scribes knew what they were doing. This was an ingenious test they were giving Jesus. They set this trap, and now Jesus is stuck. He's stuck between these two major issues. He's stuck between the law of God and the life of this woman. Have you thought about this? Um, the Pharisees knew, they'd heard Jesus teach for, for years now about compassion and mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. They, they'd heard him say that the kingdom of God could only be entered in through grace and forgiveness. He was known as the friend of sinners. But they'd also heard Jesus honor the law, uplift the law of God. He, he'd said in the Sermon on the Mount that, that uh, he did not come to abolish the law, but that, that not a jot or a tittle of the law would be removed, would, would, would uh, pass away until all had been accomplished. And so they're thinking, well, we've got him. We've got him because if he says, well, lady, two eyewitnesses caught in the act, uh, what does the law say? You've got to be stoned. Sorry. And they, and, they, and they stone her. There goes that whole merciful Messiah that everybody loves. You know, the whole come and I'll give you rest. Come, you know, bring me your burdens. Come bring your burdens and I'll stone you. That's what it would turn into be. Come and I'll kill you. Okay, the whole merciful Messiah thing would be thrown out the window. But if he says, well, I, we know what the law says, but come on, you can't kill her. You can't stone her. Let's show some mercy. Let's show some grace. Let's show some forgiveness. Then the Pharisees could say, oh, really? So this is your Messiah, people, the, the man who says he's sent from God, but who rejects the authority of the law of God. So do you see? He can't say, save the woman and reject the law, nor can he say, uphold, uphold the law and reject the woman. He can't say, save, you know, save her, don't kill her, or, you know, get all mixed up. You know what I'm saying. You get it, right? He's stuck. What is he going to say? What's he going to do? He does something remarkable. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So let's unpack that. Alan brought it up. First thing he does is he bends down and he starts writing on the ground with his finger. And like we said, we have no idea what he wrote because they don't tell us what he wrote. There's all kinds of speculation among scholars, and I read all types of different theories this week about what he was writing, what he was doing. Um, a common, a common uh, idea is that perhaps he was bending down and he was writing the names of the accusers on the ground and their sins. He was attaching sins to their names. There could be something to that. The word that, that, uh, in, in the Greek that's used for uh, to write uh, is graphian. The word that's used here is katagraphian. Kata means against. So if you say katagraphian, it could mean to write a record against someone. So when he bends down to write, it could mean that he's writing something down against the accusers. That could be it. I think that's a little 
speculative as well. Uh, a lot of scholars think that that may not be what he's doing. Some people just said, no, he's just doodling. Okay? And, and, and what does that say? It, it's, it's this ultimate uh, hard test that these, that these Pharisees and these scribes, these men who want to take his life, these men who want to kill him are putting him to the test, and he bends down and starts doodling on the ground, showing that he is completely calm, at peace. He's in control of the situation. He's not frightened. Some people think that. That might be it too. I don't know. I'll give you, this is where I lean. Here's where I lean. Uh, here's my theory. Um, how did God give us the commandment, do not commit adultery in the first place? When he gave us, do not commit adultery, he gave it within the context of the Ten Commandments, right? How did God give us the Ten Commandments? In the stone. How did he write on the stone? With his finger. He stooped down, he descends down, and he uses his finger, and he writes down the law. Um, Now, these guys are trying to use the law against Jesus. They're trying to use the law of God to trap Jesus. And Jesus, when, when they do this, he immediately bends down and starts writing with his finger. I don't know. That, to me, what that communicates, what I see Jesus communicating to this, these men is, who do you think you are to question my understanding of the Scriptures? Who do you think you are to question whether or not I honor the Scriptures? I gave you the Scriptures. I wrote the Scriptures with my own hand, my own finger. That's what I see communicated in that. I don't know if they get it. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm way off there. But they keep pressing him. They keep asking him. Maybe in their mind they think he's not answering. We stumped him. We got him. Finally, guys, we got him. But they keep pressing him. And finally, he stands up and he looks at him and he says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And I want to suggest something today. Um, and I, I guarantee there's going to be some people here today that disagree with me on what I'm going to say next. And that's okay. We can disagree with each other, right? And we can still love each other. We can still be friends. Um, here. I used to take this, and some of you are going to disagree, I used to take this as if Jesus was saying that only a person without sin can accuse somebody else and hold somebody else accountable to their sin. Okay? I used to think that only somebody sinless was able to accuse and hold someone accountable to their sin. That cannot be what he's saying. That can't be it. Otherwise, think about it. Otherwise, when we come into contact with a serial killer or a child abuser, we can't lock that person up. We can't hold that person accountable for their crimes if we must be without sin ourselves. That can't be what he's saying. I think what Jesus is doing here, I think what he's doing is I think he's pointing out that in this specific situation, these men, these accusers too are guilty. They're not innocent in this matter. They too are guilty and should be condemned and stoned as well. Let me, let me explain to you why I, why I believe that. Because remember, the laws of evidence demand that you have to actually see with your own eyes the act of adultery, which means man and woman together. Um, they had to see both the man and the woman together in consensual sexual activity. And in the Old Testament, it's clear that both the man and the woman are to be held accountable. So where's the guy? Where's the man? Uh, if, if the man is not there, then that means uh, it, they, they're, only, they're being partial. They're not holding both people ac- uh, accountable for their actions. Um, the Bible calls that partiality. It could be because women were second-class citizens in that culture, but the Bible doesn't allow for that. Because the Bible says that any judge who is partial or who has double standards should be condemned and should be killed. 
That's a, that's a, partiality is a capital offense. And these men, if they saw the consensual act, are not holding the men accountable. Therefore, they are being partial in their justice, and they too should be condemned and killed. Do you follow me? The other alternative is that they didn't actually see both the man and the woman together, and therefore they're, they're bearing false witness, which also is a capital offense in the law of God. So Jesus stands up and he says, okay, if any of you are here are innocent in this matter, go for it. Stoner. If any of you here are innocent and without guilt, then stoner. Do you see how remarkable of a statement that is? He's basically saying, don't question me about the law. I honor the law absolutely, but what about you? What about the law against partiality? What about the law against false witness? I do not deny the law, but because of this very law, I deny you the right to be her executioner. I deny you the right to be her witness a witness against her. Um, I don't know if I explained that well enough, uh, and if you understood it, but they understood it because it cut them to the heart and they walked away. They walked away and they left the woman. And by the way, one more quick tangent here. Um, there's not a lot of superfluous details within the gospel, so if you find some little random detail, you can almost guarantee that there's going to be some kind of significance. Did you catch who walked away first? The older men, the older folks uh, there. The older ones were the first to hear what Jesus said and respond accordingly. Um, one thing that I noticed this week, I hadn't thought of from this perspective before, but they were the first, but they weren't the last, which means they led the way for the younger men to repent of what they were doing. Um, may I just say, well, the application is clear, it's obvious here, but may I just say as a fairly young member of this congregation, depends on who you ask, um, but as a fairly young member of this congregation, um, what, a, what a great picture of how vital and important and valuable the older men and women in this church are. Um, this isn't always the case, but oftentimes we know wisdom comes with age and humility comes with age. Uh, a clearer perspective on life and faith and relationships often comes with age. Um, so on behalf of the younger members of this congregation, can I just ask the older members here, the more seasoned, let's say that, the more seasoned, the more experienced members of our congregation, may I ask you, um, let's, let's follow, lead by example. Be encouraged by this. Lead by example. Listen to the words of Jesus. Obey. And let us follow you as you follow Christ. Be our example. Lead the way. That's all I'll say about that. Um, can I get amen from the young people? All right. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, all the accusers walk away, and Jesus stands up, and he looks at the woman. He looks at the woman, and he says, Woman, where did everybody go? Where are your accusers? Does nobody condemn you? And she says, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He says, Woman, where is everybody? And, and, it, and it, because we're coming from 21st century America, you know, English language, all that, we might misunderstand the tone here because of what Jesus calls here. If I were to call Jessica, if I were to say, woman, da-da-da-da, it would not go well for me, right? But we have a misunderstanding here because when Jesus uses this term, in fact, it's an endearing term. It's a term of affection. It's a term of love. It's a, he, what he's saying, he's saying, dear woman, Loved woman, cared for woman. This is the same word that he uses when he talks to his own mom. 
When he's hanging on the cross and he sees his weeping mom mourning over her son, he looks down at her and, and tries to comfort her and says, Woman, this is the same term. Do you, do you see the difference in the way that Jesus engages with this woman in, in contrast to the Pharisees? This really, this really uh, grabbed my heart this week. The scribes and the Pharisees, who are these you know, self-proclaimed authorities because of their knowledge of the law, um, they didn't care about this woman. They lorded over her with, uh, due to their authority. They just uh, lorded their authority over her. They weren't brokenhearted over this woman's sin. They, they weren't uh, interested in calling her into repentance. They weren't interested in calling her to any reformation. They weren't interested in the, in the care and the well-being of her soul. They were, they were simply moral watchdogs just waiting to pounce, just waiting to tear this sinner to pieces. In fact, I, I, the Pharisees didn't see this woman as a person at all. She was a thing to be used for their benefit. She was a tool. That was it. She was a thing to be used. They probably didn't know her name. They probably didn't know her personality. They probably didn't know her feelings or her story at all. She was a pawn to be used in their little games. And friends, this is an extreme example of this, but there is nothing more anti-Christian or ungodly for us to do than to use people for our own benefit, to deny the personhood of other people in our life. We're made in the image of God. There's not, I don't think there's anything more ungodly for us to do than to deny the personhood, the, 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 the fact that they are image bearers. Um, the employees that you manage at your work are not simply tools for you to wield to grow your business. They are people created by God, for God, in the image of God. And guys, the... The women on our computer screens are not things to be used for our pleasure. They are people who have names, who have families, who have stories, who have feelings, who have wounds, who have God-given gifts and potential and value. They are, not, they are not things to be used for our benefit, for our pleasure. They are people they are daughters, they are sons, made in the image of the living God. How does Jesus engage with the woman? Look, look at the contrast. What does Jesus do? First, he stands up and he looks her in the eye. And then he talks to her. He doesn't just talk about her like the Pharisees were. He actually talks to her. And then he calls her dear woman, loved woman, cared for woman, woman. And he, he affirms her. You, you see that when he uses that name, when he, when, he, when he speaks to her in that way, he affirms her, he loves her, he restores her dignity. And then he forgives her. He says, neither do I condemn you. And then he calls her into a new life. You know, a lot of movies about Jesus, they're almost always, they'll use this story. Um, yeah, out of all the different stories they could use about Jesus, about all the different miracles, almost always you're going to use this story. Why? Because it's such a clear and profound picture of God's love for, for the lost and the brokenhearted. But almost always in those, in those movies, what you're going to find is that they will say, uh, you know, they'll get to the end of the scene and Jesus will say, neither do I condemn you. And almost always they'll put a period right there. Almost always they'll stop right there. And they leave out the part that says, and from now on, sin no more. 
Um, but you can't leave that part out. Not just because it's part of the Bible, but because otherwise it's not real love. If you true, listen, if you truly love someone, you cannot stand to see that person destroy themselves anymore. Real grace, real true love says, I am going to get into this person's life. I'm going to connect with this person. I'm going to intervene in this person's life, and I'm going to stop them from destroying themselves anymore. Guys, sin is destructive. This woman's choices were destructive to her and to those around her. And the most loving thing that Jesus could do for the woman at that time was not just forgive her, but to call her into a life of holiness. Sin is destructive to us and to those around us. The most loving thing that God can do for me and for you is to call you and I into a life of holiness. And in fact, if you look closer, we even find a clue on how we're supposed to do this. We even find a clue right here tucked in our story on how we are to live a life of holiness. Look again at what Jesus says to the woman. And actually, when I read this, notice the order in which he says what he does. He says this, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, stop sinning, and then I won't condemn you. He says, I don't condemn you now. Stop sinning. That is so important. You see the difference? This, this radically transforms our motivation for not sinning anymore. Some of us in here today are still running on this treadmill of effort, of this treadmill of work, trying so hard to, to, to remove the condemnation of God, trying to be accepted in God's eyes. But friends, get off the treadmill. He has, listen to him, he has taken away your condemnation. He accepts you freely. That's what grace is. It is a free gift. And it's when we understand this and it's when we embrace this that we are finally free from having to fight sin out of a sense of self-centeredness. Some of us are still fighting sin because we're afraid that if we don't, that God's going to get us. Is that your motivation for fighting sin? And if that's the case, then, then there's still some things you've got to grasp about God's grace. Some of us in here today are still fighting sin motivated out of a sense of self-preservation. We think if I just do enough good and I just avoid enough bad, then God won't be mad at me anymore. But don't you see the condemnation has been taken away? And plus, think about it. There is no honor for God and there is no joy for you if you are serving God out of self-preservation, out of fear. Um, what, what would be more honoring to Jessica? Uh, if I serve her, if I, if I am faithful to her, out of my love for her and my gratitude for her and my devotion to her? Or is it, is, is it, you know, from being afraid that if I don't, that she'll get mad at me and I'll suffer for it later? Which is more honoring to Jessica and more joy-filled for me? There is no honor for God and no joy in it for you if you are serving God based out of a self-centered, self-preservation mindset, out of fear. In fact, I would, I would, I would, Venture to say, I would go so far as to say that the only way to serve God, the only way to, to worship God is through the gospel. You have to understand that your condemnation is taken away. Otherwise, your motivation is going to be based out of fear and self-preservation. If we get this, now what we're able to do is we see our motivation for holiness change. We're able to take our sin, the things that we struggle with, our bad habits, uh, the, these, our thoughts, and so on, and we're able to bring them to the cross. 
And we're able to hear Jesus tell us. This is, this is what, again, this is, I'm just telling you out of personal experience. I've been able, I can hear Jesus say, Philip, that sin in your life, it no longer condemns you. It doesn't condemn you anymore. Bring it to me. It doesn't condemn you. You're free. But Philip, listen, you've got to get rid of it. We've got to do away with it because it's not honoring to me, nor is it good for you. In fact, it's harmful to you. It's destroying you, and it's destroying your relationships. Your sin is destructive, and we've got to put it to death. It's going to be painful. It's going to take some time. But, I, but it's because I love you and because I want what's best for you and because I want to see you great and beautiful and pure in everything that I created you to be. So now what's my motivation? It's not fear anymore because perfect love drives out fear. My motivation now is love and gratitude and trust. And you know how we can trust him? The cross. I know that he wants what's best for me. Because he proved it. He died proving it. So I don't know what you're wrestling with today. We're all wrestling with something. I don't know what's yours. I'm not sure what habit or vice that you've been battling. But friends, would you, would you be willing to stop for a moment today and consider for just a minute what has been motivating you up until this point? What has been your motivation in your battle against sin up until today? Have you been fighting your sin based out of fear that if you don't, that God's going to get you? Fear-based motivation, like I'm telling you, it will never work. I've tried it. It doesn't work. Take your sin to the cross. We say it every week here. Uh, Miriam sang it last week. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's the answer. We turn our eyes upon Jesus and we look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's how we fight sin. We bring it to the cross and we look at the glory and grace of Jesus Christ and we let that motivate us. I'm going to finish with one final thought here. Let me speak to those maybe who are here today who have never placed their faith in Jesus. Um, you might be here and you might be thinking, okay, this is all well and good for you guys, but I'm not like you guys because you don't know what, where I've been. You don't know what I've done. I can't go to Jesus. I can't take my sin to Jesus because he would condemn me. It, maybe that's fine for this woman, but this, it, I, I have been places that, you, that I, I, can't, I don't even want to talk about. I, I have been bruised. I, have, I am weak. I am messed up. My life has fallen apart. I can't go to him. Again, my, if, if, that's, if that's what you're saying today, take a long, hard look at this story. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Isaiah 59.1 says it like this. Isaiah writes, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Can I translate that for you? It, God doesn't have little T-Rex arms. Okay, he's not sitting like this, uh, you know, thinking, man, I really wish I could help that guy. My arms just won't stretch. I, he's, he's fallen too far down. He's run too far away. I just can't reach him. God doesn't have T-Rex arms. His arms are long enough to save, and his ears are strong enough to hear. I'm not, I'm not going to deny that you've run far. Every single person in this room is guilty. Every person. We're all guilty. We've all fallen short. But guys, so was the woman in the story. Remember, that's why we, that's why we said what we did in, in the beginning. Jesus actually confirms that she's guilty because he says, go and sin no more. What he's saying is she's guilty. Stop sinning. If he didn't have to say that if she didn't sin. She was, in fact, guilty. But in the very same breath, Jesus says, but there will be no condemnation. Have you ever thought, how, 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 could he, how could he say that? 
Jesus says, you are guilty and I don't condemn you. Doesn't he know what the law says? Of course he does. He wrote the law. You are guilty and I don't condemn you. How can he say that? The the law demands that there's justice, that, that a punishment for crime is necessary. The wages of our sin is death. I'll tell you how he can say it because in, in, in Mark chapter 10, in another place, Jesus says, uh, he says, um, I'll be the one. He says, I'll be the one handed over to these Pharisees and the scribes and they'll, be, they'll condemn me. If you, I don't know if you've thought about it. This is in the same town that that's going to happen. It could be the very same Pharisees and scribes that were going to condemn this woman. That might have been who Jesus was actually handed over to. Jesus is able to tell this woman, you are guilty, but you will not be condemned because he says, I'll be the one that's handed over to the Pharisees and scribes. I'll be the one that's condemned. They'll condemn me. They'll mock me. They'll spit on me. They'll flog me. They'll kill me. So do you know what I hear Jesus basically saying to this woman from his heart? He doesn't say it out loud, but this is what I hear from him. I hear him saying, woman, you are guilty. I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. You won't even have one little stone of God's wrath pelt you because I will be crushed under the mountain of God's wrath and justice for human sin. Stones will be thrown, but they'll be thrown at him. They'll strike him. That's why Paul is able to say in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And every other religion will tell you that this is crazy talk. Because every other religion will tell you it's either you are not guilty, therefore you are not condemned, or you are guilty, therefore you are condemned. You want to know the beautiful, unique paradox of Christianity? If you're a Christian here today, let me describe you. You are guilty and not condemned. You are a sinner and yet utterly, completely accepted by God. Does that describe you? I hope it it describes every single person in this room. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Has he taken away his condemnation from you? Are you still standing under the weight because you refuse to receive the forgiveness that he's offering? Cry out to him. Put your hand in his because his ears are strong enough to hear and his arms can reach you. Let him forgive you. Let him restore you. Let him lead you into a new life. And for those of us who are following Jesus today, may a continual vision of the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ be the fuel that motivates our pursuit of holiness. Amen? We have, we have been forgiven. We have been washed clean. Now may we go and sin no more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just this great story, God. Just this great picture of your love for sinners, your grace for sinners, God. We know that we are guilty. We know that we have uh, run uh, far. We were like the prodigal son who has run and has uh, pursued all of these other things and left the Father's love. And God, we thank you, God, that that as soon as we turn around, God, you're there with open arms running to us, embracing us. God, we thank you for that. What a gift that is. Lord, I pray that you would help every person here in this church um, really embrace the the truth of the gospel, Lord, that we would be able to be freed from this pursuit uh, of your love uh, based uh, or earned by our own works. I pray, God, you'd, you'd heal us from that. You'd open our eyes to the beauty of what you've done and why you did it and, and the rewards and the blessings that we receive as a result. I pray, God, that each and every day we would walk deeper and deeper in that. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.